Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can live out your MasterChef dream. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. And before the episode begins, I would just like to let you know that Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71, features scary stories from around the globe on a weekly basis that aim to fuel your nightmares with a smile. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could hit that subscribe button and drop a review. Thanks for listening, guys. And without further ado, let's begin. I weighed my options for learning more about Sulk. Trying to become closer to him personally was too risky. Because if he was actually the man who killed your grandmother, Rebecca, he would be looking at me closely for any signs that I suspected him. I was never an overly social person to begin with, so suddenly trying to buddy up to him would stand out, and I also didn't want to be tied any closer to a person that may soon go missing, because even at that early stage, I was resolved that when I was sure who took Rebecca from me, I would kill them. In some ways, my lack of equivocation on that point made things easier to plan, but it also meant that I had to be extra careful. For instance, using a private investigator to tail him was out. I couldn't have a third party knowing about my interest in Salk, not even Daniel Church had his name, and his involvement was a necessary evil. Also, what if the PI saw Salk doing something illegal and called the police? I understand how that sounds, but you need to remember that I had no idea what his motive was if he was the killer. Was it an isolated incident or part of something more? The brutality and the transporting of the body to the field pointed towards someone who had possibly killed before, but the inherent risk in taking someone from the place that you work, even in a small and isolated parking lot like that one, made me wonder if he was either an amateur or at least very impulsive. Also, being completely honest, I didn't want anyone between me and the person that took her away. So that left watching him myself. While I was no expert, I knew that I would need three basic things. 
opportunity, ability to observe, and concealment. For opportunity, I slowly shifted my work schedule at the hospital to mirror that of Sulk for the most part. This had to be done over the course of a month, so I didn't arouse suspicion. Even then, it wasn't perfect, as I would be on call at times and I couldn't watch him constantly in even the best of circumstances. Still, I managed to develop a routine of watching him over 40 hours a week, which was the best that I could manage by myself. As far as ability to observe, I bought the best binoculars and parabolic mic that I could afford, along with some tools for getting into places if I needed to. Planning ahead, I also bought a 45 pistol, five bundles of rope, and three rolls of tape, two knives, and a stun gun. I wasn't planning to act yet, but I wanted to be prepared just in case. Obviously, I had to get these items over time and with cash only. Concealment was simpler, but much more expensive. I bought two older model cars that were cheap, reliable, and common. I had to look at a number of cars before I found two that had no distinctive damage, trim, or color combination that also weren't likely to break down on me. I then found four places to park them where they wouldn't be towed as long as they didn't stay in one spot more than a few days, and as long as I rotated them a couple of times a week, everything was fine. I considered disguises, but I saw too many pitfalls. If I got pulled over, it would look suspicious. If Salk saw and recognized me in some getup, it would alert him right away when coincidence might explain us intersecting otherwise. I also wanted to keep up with any similar killings that might have occurred, and this was before the World Wide Web, so that meant newspapers. I got a dozen subscriptions from a, a roughly 500-mile radius around, and I began pouring through them looking for murders and disappearances. By the time everything was in place, two months had passed from when I got the DNA results. The first night, I sat up down the street from Salk's house. I felt a a stir of excitement mixed with my constant sadness and rage. The preparations of the last few weeks had preoccupied my thoughts somewhat, but it had done nothing to ease my sorrow or cool my anger. Sitting in the shadows on that quiet neighborhood street, I strained at every sound and movement like a, a racecourse waiting for the gate to drop. Just let me have something to confirm what this man had done so that I could set to tearing him apart. But of course, nothing happened that first night or the nights that followed. I would trail him from his home to the store, to movies, to a coffee shop where a bored girl 20 years younger than him tried to gamely fend off his awkward flirtations. And between the binoculars and the mic, I could see and hear a surprising amount. And as time went on... I got better at positioning myself at the best angles while hopefully staying inconspicuous. Three weeks in, and I felt like I knew Sulk fairly well. He seemed to be a, a lonely but harmless man that did nothing out of the ordinary. But of course, that was outside Sulk. I needed to see what inside Sulk really looked like. I had explored the exterior of Salk's house one day when I knew that he wasn't there a month ago, and the safest place to enter seemed to be the back door. I had ordered a pick set in the same model lock as he had, a cheap four-pin lock with no security pins. I had actually read a, a book on lockpicking when I was a kid, but 
I've been reading more lately in preparation for this. I practiced on the duplicate lock for hours, mainly using a small tension tool at the bottom, along with a rake pick to trigger the pins. I knew the real lock would be keyed differently, of course, but with practice I could unlock the dupe in less than 30 seconds. I picked a rare night when he was working and I was not, and then I went to his house. Parking two streets over, I cut through the backyards quietly, wincing at the bark of a nearby dog. As I crept across his yard and onto his back porch, I had an image of him popping out of the door with a shotgun lowered at my chest. I shook off the thought though and crouched down at the door to begin picking. Every scrape of metal sounded enormous in the still night air and I soaked my shirt with sweat in the two minutes that it took me to open that lock. Without hesitating, I swung open the door and I eased inside. The air inside was stale and cool, with the faint smell of cleaning agents and paint the only notable aromas. I was entering through the kitchen, which was very clean but also completely bare. There was no food, no furniture, not even appliances aside from an oven that looked rarely used. I knew that the house should be unoccupied, but I still moved quietly and I made sure that my small flashlight stayed well below any windows. Moving further into the house, I found empty room after empty room, no furniture or boxes or decorations, and then I reached what I supposed was Salk's bedroom. There was a, a bare mattress on the floor and a tall standing mirror in one corner. The closet contained a handful of clothes that were the same things that I saw him wearing every day, and I saw something on the mirror. I went back to it. It was a, a picture of Sulk, 10 years younger and 50 pounds lighter. He was at the beach with a woman and they were in some kind of joking volleyball jock pose. He looked like he was really happy in the picture and it lit his... That was when I heard the front door click and I froze. It was unlikely that it could be anyone other than him and regardless, I didn't need to be caught in his house. I went to the second closet in the room, fearing that I would find it full with items that he regularly used. Thankfully, it was empty, and I eased the door closed a moment before he entered. I could see some through the levered closet door, the wooden slats providing little slashes of vision as he moved around. My heart pounded as he opened the other closet and hung up his jacket before changing clothes. I found out later that he had asked for a half shift at the last minute, which explained how he was at home six hours earlier. Apparently, he had decided to make the most of his evening too, because he was dressing to go back out. In blue jeans and a t-shirt, he looked almost normal, except for when you saw his face. It was completely devoid of expression as he silently moved around the room. After putting on different shoes, he stood in front of the mirror staring at himself, motionless for several minutes. His stillness was almost mesmerizing. When he finally moved, I almost jumped. He was reaching for the picture, holding it closer and studying it, before studying his own face again. His eyes went back and forth, back and forth as the smile in the picture took form on his own face. Watching the expression slow birth across his lips was weirdly grotesque. 
but worse was the realization that came with it. He was practicing. He was practicing how he should look when he smiled. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. As I watched Salk study himself in the mirror, I kept waiting for some sign that he knew that I was there. A glance in my direction or some indication that... He was preparing for a fight, but there was none. He continued to practice smiling for a few more moments and then he replaced the photo on the mirror and left the room. When I heard the front door open and shut again, I assumed that he'd left, but even after I strained and heard what sounded like his car cranking up and driving off outside, I waited a couple of minutes before easing open the closet door. I was tight with tension with every creak of the floor sounding like a gunshot in my ears. I crept to the back door, constantly looking around for some sign that Salk had silently doubled back to trick me into thinking that he'd left. But no, he seemed to have truly gone. Peeking out the back door window, I made my way out onto the back porch and across his yard. When I was back to my car, I drove around to his street and Salk's car was gone. I had no way of knowing where he had went, but I decided that that was okay for that night. While I didn't have definitive evidence that he was a killer yet, the strangeness that I had observed that night made the idea a lot more credible. Tired, I went home and tried to get some sleep with little luck. Two days later, I received one of my distant newspaper deliveries, a 20-year-old girl had gone missing the night that I had been in Salk's house and he had left for parts unknown. It was nearly 200 miles away from here, but based on the timeline of when she was last seen, he would have had plenty of time to get there if it was him. Even not knowing if he was to blame, I felt terrible. Responsible, in fact. If I had done better, been smarter, I... I could have stopped him already or at least tracked him so that I would know if he had gone to the girl's town or not. 
as it was, I was left continuing to observe. That and trying to find out more about Marcus Salk from his past. I managed to pull his file in the admin office at the hospital and found that prior to coming to our town, he had been at a hospital outside of Olath, Kansas for a number of years. There wasn't really much information beyond his curriculum, which contained nothing out of the ordinary for an orthopedic surgeon. Still, it did give me a bit of a jumping off point. I called the hospital in Kansas and worked my way to someone in human resources, telling them that I was with a large medical practice in Seattle that was considering extending an offer to a former doctor there and was checking through his references as part of the potential hiring process. The woman on the phone was friendly from the start, but I could tell that there was a brief hesitation and change of tone when I mentioned the person in question was Dr. Salk. Well, uh, uh, I can put you in touch with the chief of staff if you want. He was chief back when Marcus was here too, so he can talk more about what kind of doctor that he was. But I, well, I shouldn't say anything. Her desire to gossip was almost palpable. I understand, and I'm not trying to put you in a bad spot, but I don't want to make the wrong choice on the guy either, so anything that you can tell me will be off the record. But it's a big help if you could give me any insight that you might have into him. There was a moment of contemplative silence, and then she went on. It's just... Look, Marcus was a nice guy when he first came here, right? joked around a lot, patients loved him, he had a sweet wife and he fit right in. Then him and his wife go on vacation to Europe one summer. This was six or seven years ago now I think. And when he got back, he was just different somehow. Different how? I asked, trying to keep the intense curiosity out of my voice. I was supposed to be a mildly interested businessman, not an obsessed stalker. I could almost hear her shrug over the phone. I don't know how to describe it. He was still nice and would joke some, but it all seemed forced. He was off from how he had been before. Within a few months, him and his wife were divorced and he had moved away. And I guess that he's on the move again. Yeah, we'll see, I guess. You've given me a lot of food for thought. Hey, uh... Is his wife okay? I mean, did everything turn out okay for her? I could sense her hesitating again, and I was worried that I may have pushed for more than she'd give. Luckily, the gossip in her won out as she let out a small sigh. Yeah, I guess so. Bless her heart. She still lives around here, so I see her from time to time. She doesn't look happy, though. I think Alicia really loved him, and whatever came between them, I, I think it hurt her a lot. I could feel the rage building in me again as she spoke. Yes, losing someone you love like that, it kind of destroys you. I, uh, you know what, thank you. Thank you for your help. You've given me a lot to go on. Don't you want to talk to the chief? I gave a small laugh I didn't feel. No, uh, I think I got what I needed right here. Thank you again. When I hung up the phone, I sat with my head in my hands for some time. My thoughts were swimming in the blackness of my mind like pale blind cave fish. I would catch glimpses of their pallid scales and hear the occasional ripple or splash as they stirred the water, but 
These ghost impressions left me with little in the way of a solid idea or plan. The things that felt most real to me were my pain and my anger, and it was getting harder to hold them in check. Still, I had to be sure. I took a few days off and drove to Olaith to try and track down Sulk's ex-wife. She wasn't going by her married name any longer, so the phone directory was of little use. I called the Kansas Medical Board and got a residential mailing address that he had never changed. And this led me to a nice brick home in a small suburban neighborhood, not far from Salk's former hospital. As I went up to the front door, I could see that the paint around the door and on the shutters was peeling, and the air of the disuse and being unoccupied grew so strong as I approached that I felt sure that I was knocking at the door of an empty house. But only seconds after I knocked, a woman in her 40s opened the door. She looked at me warily as I fought down the urge to tell her that I knew her. In a way, it was true. I mean, she was the girl from Sulk's picture. Swallowing, though, I pushed forward with my story. Uh, hi, ma'am. Uh, my name is Peter Elliott. I was hoping that I could ask you a few questions about your former husband. I tried to smile and seemed non-threatening, but I could see her running the mental calculus of the likelihood that I was a thief or a rapist. After studying me further, she nodded and stepped aside. Come in, I guess. Is Marcus in some sort of trouble? We stepped into a foyer cluttered with stacks of books and magazines. And as we spoke, she led me down a path to a living room that was even more filled with row after row of books. I gestured around. You've got quite the collection. She had moved a stack of newspapers off a, a worn-looking sofa and gestured for me to sit down. She shrugged. You know, I think that I slipped from being a collector maybe to a hoarder about two years ago. I need to clear all this junk out, I know. She looked used up and small in her pale blue bathrobe as she sat down in an old recliner. Her sad eyes looked thoughtfully distant for a moment before coming back to me. So, is he in trouble? I smiled. I don't know yet, honestly. I'm just looking into him for an interested party and my understanding is that you two were together for years. A brief look of pain crossed her face. Yeah, we were. Childhood sweethearts, if you can believe it. I thought that we'd always be together. I leaned forward. If you don't feel it's too personal, can you tell me what changed? Did Marcus change? She picked at some dried skin on her lip nervously. She suddenly seemed very uncertain. I, uh... <sighs> to hell with it. Yes, he did. He changed all of a sudden. Do you know when or why? She nodded, her eyes focusing on me as anger lit the edges of her face. I know exactly when. We had just come back from a trip to Europe, something we had wanted to do since high school. It had a great time, too. We had landed in Atlanta and were waiting for our connecting flight to Topeka. And that's when he got sick. Got sick? Sick how? She shook her head. I don't know. He had gone to the bathroom near the terminal and when he came back he said that he just didn't feel well. His head and neck were hurting a lot. He felt nauseous. By the time that we landed in Kansas he said that it had passed but 
she sighed. This is pointless. You won't believe anything that I'm going to tell you anyway. I grimaced slightly. I will, please. I can't go into detail, but this is really important, and I'll listen to anything you tell me with an open mind. She looked at me for several moments, again weighing. Finally, she nodded and went on. He was different from then on. At first, I thought that it was he was just still sick or jet-lagged, but then I thought that he was stressed or having a midlife crisis. And those were all just excuses, really. Because I was thinking it from the night that we got home from the airport. Thinking what? That it wasn't Marcus anymore. She held up a hand. I know, I know. I know how that sounds, believe me, but I knew that man. I had known him and loved him since I was ten. It was like whatever happened between us landing in Atlanta and taking back off, it swallowed him up. He still sounded like Marcus, and I could see him trying to act like him, but it was just wrong somehow. False. It felt like someone who knew a lot about Marcus was trying to impersonate him. She gave a harsh laugh. <laughs> I swear, he even smelled different. I told my mother that and she just set me up with a therapist right away. I didn't know what to do with all of this. What she was saying was incredible. In the literal sense of that word, but I found myself believing her in a way. Even if she was wrong... I didn't think that she was lying to me. So, what are you saying? You don't think that it was him anymore? What does that mean? I, I don't know. Believe me, I've spent years wondering about it too and I still don't know the answer. But something changed and not in the normal oh people change way. He was not right. I would see him sometimes when he didn't know that I was around and he was entirely different. His face would be slack. His eyes would be dead. He looked like some kind of terrible doll. I thought about my night in the closet and suppressed a shudder. Was he ever violent or abusive towards you? She shook her head. No, no, never. Never said a harsh word to me. Actually had less of a temper than he had before, but... He'd always been sweet back when he was himself, too. She rubbed at her eyes for a moment before continuing. But it didn't matter. I tried talking to him about it at first, tried to see if I could help, but when I finally accepted that it wasn't him anymore, I found myself just getting more and more withdrawn, more and more, well, afraid of him. Really? What made you afraid of him? She stood up, jamming her hands in her pockets of her robe as she began to pace around the open patches of the floor in the room. Have, have you ever been in an aquarium with sharks? I nodded. Well, you know how they'll swim by, looking at you all calm and placid, but you sort of know that behind that black eye that they aren't calm or placid. They're just not ready to eat yet, and they know that there's glass in the way. That's sort of the way that I came to feel when Marcus was here. He would glide around me silently in the mornings and at night, his eyes seeing and not seeing me at the same time. And he was always calm, always grinning his fake sort of shark grin. 
Maybe it was just my imagination, but I felt like whatever hunger he had, it was growing, and the glass that was holding him back was getting thinner. I realized that I had been holding my breath, and I let it out. So, you divorced him? She gave a small, sad smile as she sat back down. Yes, it was very easy too. I told him that I wanted a divorce, and he said that that sounded just fine, and he moved out the same day. Aside from signing papers in a lawyer's office, I never saw him again. Okay, but why did you stay here, stay in the same house? Weren't you worried that he might come back? Her smile grew slightly. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? On the one hand, yes, I'm scared of seeing Marcus showing back up one day. But what if it was the real Marcus that came back? What if I had moved, changed my name, made sure that he couldn't find me, and then it was the real Marcus, somehow back as randomly as he was taken away, and he came looking for me? I mean, what if... What if he couldn't find me? Her voice grew thick at the end and I reached out to grasp her shoulder. I didn't have any real words of comfort or wisdom for her and being around her pain just reminded me of my own. Standing, I looked down at the girl that had once been Alicia Salk. It made me hate Marcus even more to see what he had done to her. I don't have any easy answers for you, Alicia. I just... I don't think that Marcus, well, your Marcus anyway, is coming back. I really don't know if that helps or hurts you, but maybe it will make it easier for you to move on. She looked up, her expression bitter. It doesn't help, and I know you mean well, but I'd like you to leave. I nodded and headed outside. I turned to say goodbye, but the door was already closed behind me. When I got back home the following morning, I found a follow-up article on the missing girl. She had been found behind a middle school a few miles away from where she was abducted. And she had been torn apart. Apartments.com believes that a dishwasher does more than just clean plates. It turns your whole place into a time machine by turning the time that you would have spent washing dishes into extra time for you. That could mean more time to read, more time to knit, or more time to contemplate the vastness of time itself. With Apartments.com, finding somewhere to live with an elusive dishwashing slash time-expanding device is easy. Apartments.com hosts the most rental listings with over 1 million available units. And with comprehensive search tools and instant alerts, you never have to worry about missing out on the perfect place. To find whatever you're searching for and more, visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. 
Sound travels farther in cold weather. It's called refraction, and essentially, the sound waves that are in the higher, warmer air that is farther from cold ground move faster through the more excited air molecules and get pushed back downward, so sound gets amplified closer to the ground. I knew that at the time too, though I didn't learn the science behind it until later. That night, I was just wondering how far away the screams of the little boy were coming from. It had been five weeks since I'd returned from Olathe, and in that time I had found out little new beyond some information about the last girl who had been killed. A pretty blonde girl in her sophomore year of college, she had two parents and a brother that the newspapers bled for grief and drama for a couple of weeks before moving on to the next tragedy. But it wasn't over for them. It would never be over for any of us. It would have been an easy thing to add their imagined pain to my own and use it as all the justification that I needed to end this now, to end him now. But for all of my circumstantial evidence, I had nothing definitive. Even the DNA from your grandmother's nails, while compelling, didn't eliminate any other explanation and given what I intended on doing to him, I, I needed to be sure. I had stayed busy in the intervening weeks, both in surveilling Sulk and my work, as well as in more fully preparing for when I finally took him, if it came to that. I purchased, again slowly and with great discretion, a variety of medical supplies and tools. I found an old moving truck from a defunct company that I got cheap with cash. The container body of that truck is where I set up Sulk's room. I bolted a table to the floor and attached straps and chains to it. I attached lights to the interior corners of the container and added a row of shelves and a chair to one side. I even welded an IV stand to the wall so that I could keep him fed with whatever cocktail of saline and drugs that I needed to keep him alive. I planned on torturing him for a long time and I didn't want him dying from shock or infection. I told myself I was going to do all these things to him to get information, to get answers to the hows and whys of what all he had done. But that was only partially true, I admit. In my heart of hearts, I knew that I was going to do it, whether he gave me answers or not. I hated that part of myself, but if I was going to control it, I had to accept it. So I prepared the room Sulk would slowly die in, while salving my conscience with the knowledge that I was being thorough and fair before I took him. Of course, that's not how things played out though. One night, the night of the screams and so much more, I was watching Sulk's house with the dull-eyed enthusiasm of a sentry who always guards the same post. I had been there for close to eight hours and was actually close to packing it up to go and get some rest. When Sulk suddenly came out of his house and got into his car. This was strange for him. It was nearly eight in the evening and he never left the house after six except for the time that I had been in the closet, the night the girl was taken. Feeling my pulse pounding in my head, I waited until he was almost out of sight and then I pulled out and began to follow him. We drove for well over an hour and despite the darkness of the hour and the other cars on the road, I couldn't help but feel conspicuous. 
I hung back as much as I dared, but I couldn't risk losing him again. So after going through town and traveling up the interstate over 80 miles, he got off at an exit full of rundown shopping centers and closed restaurants. At first, I thought that he had a particular place that he was headed, but he just turned into the first large parking lot and began cruising through it at low speed, even circling around the backside of what looked to be a defunct electronics store and a couple of clothing outlets. After he had made a complete circuit, he moved on to the next one and then the next. Once I understood what he was doing, it made it easier for me to hang back and observe. I would stay up near the street and park, waiting for him to finish looking for whatever or whoever he was looking for, before easing back behind him and into the next lot. It was nearly 10 now and many of the places were closed, but there were enough cars still around that I should have been hard to notice at such a distance. That distance, though, was a mistake. We were in the fourth parking lot, and as I waited for him to come back around from driving the backside of the grocery store and smaller stores that made up this latest decaying shopping center, I realized that it was taking too long. I put the car in drive and eased around to the back, mimicking the direction that he had gone. As I turned the corner, in the distance... I saw him shoving a boy of around 10 into his car. I began to speed up, but he was fast and far away. By the time that I'd reached where the boy had been taken, Salk was already pulling out onto some back road that led away from the lot. I followed, abandoning any pretense of stealth now. I worried that me chasing him could cause him to hurt the boy sooner rather than later, but I had to take that chance. If Salk got away, that boy was going to die. The road that we were taking was small and winding, leading through a neighborhood and then further away from buildings and lights. My little spy car, while reliable, was not equipped with the best headlights or any great speed, and it took all of my concentration to keep to the road while not losing ground as I pursued them. We were 10 miles out of town now, fields of lightly frosted farmland reflecting the ghost glow of winter moonlight as we threaded our way through the darkness. We passed a home that was brightly lit with twinkling colored lights and molded plastic reindeer and it occurred to me that Christmas had been the week before and I hadn't even noticed. Farmland began to give way to woods and I noticed with rising panic that I was now running low on gas. Enough to get back to town, sure, to get the boy help, but just barely. This, it needed to end now. I stomped the pedal down as far as it would go and the car jumped forward with a protesting whine. I really wasn't sure how long I could maintain this speed without wrecking or the engine blowing up, but I didn't need long. Gripping the wheel tightly, I readied myself as the nose of my car reached within a foot of Salk's back bumper. At the next curve, I moved into the left lane long enough to gain half a length more then swung the front fender of my car straight into his back tire. The effect was immediate. He began to spin out, but then so did I. I tried to regain control of the car, but it was too late. I jumped the shallow ditch on the right side of the road, and then everything went dark. When I woke up, my car was somehow still running, its hood crumpled from going head-on into a medium-sized maple tree. Judging by the car clock, only a few minutes had passed, but 
That was more than enough time for Salt to get away. I tried to look out my window, but it was sort of fogged up beyond any visibility, so I just opened the door and slowly got out. My head was swimmy, and I had a small gash where I had hit my head on the steering wheel, but otherwise I, I seemed okay. Steadying myself against the car, I looked around and saw Sulk's car, also wrecked in the far deeper left ditch 50 feet down the road. The front doors to the car were open, and there was no sign of anyone. I started making my way up the road to the car, and... It didn't take long before I saw the drag marks leading away into the woods. I patted my pockets. I had my gun and a folding knife on me, and that would have to do. Following the path wasn't hard at first, with the moonlight throwing the thick ravines of ice, snow, and dirt into sharp relief. As I got deeper into the trees, however, the shadows and the undergrowth began to slow my progress. And that... That's when the boy began screaming. I picked up my pace again, moving at a loping, unsteady run as I tried to gauge direction through a combination of sight and sound. The boy's cries were becoming louder, but they were also becoming more shrill and frantic as they moved from fear into terror. I pushed through a last thick stand of pines, and then I saw why the boy was screaming. So... This is where I have to ask for your patience more than anything that's come before, okay? I understand that I'm giving you a, a great deal of detail to explain everything fully, but despite the strangeness of much of it, I don't know anything so far has fallen entirely outside of what you understand as possible. This next part, I'm going to do my best to describe it, but... You need to understand that I will fail to really do it justice, and it is going to sound unbelievable. Just try to bear with me as best as you can, okay? So, I pushed through those trees and stumbled into a, a sort of small clearing. The cold white moonlight was shining down like a spotlight over the scene. The boy, he looked closer to eight now that I was this much closer, was down on his back, trying to scrabble away from the thing towering over him. Salk was nowhere to be seen. As for the thing itself though, whatever it was, it stood on two legs and was half again as big as a man. From behind, I could see that its legs were digitigrade, like the legs of a dog or a cat, though they reminded me more of rat legs. It had no tail that I could see, but just relatively small hips that swiftly expanded into a large, muscular torso. The back of the torso was largely covered with matted grey hair, though it became patchy and seemed to transition into some kind of black chitin as it moved towards the head. Mind you, I took all of this in quickly and while still moving forward slowly. But then, it turned to face me. Its head was a, a strange mix of reptile and insect, reminding me of a cross between a sort of large beetle and a snake. A hard black shell hooded a long face set with burning yellow eyes and a mouth full of long curved teeth. The strangest thing about it was its arms, but they were different from each other. One was heavy and thick, made out of that same black material and shaped like some kind of savage club that tapered to a sort of spiky lump at the end. 
The other was a, a slender, furry hand with fingers that were long and almost graceful looking, each tip punctuated by a hooked claw. As it regarded me, I involuntarily took a step back. My mind was having trouble reconciling what I was seeing. How was I supposed to deal with something like this? Still, I had to try. I fumbled and pulled the gun from my coat pocket, leveled it at the creature, and fired. I saw the round strike just before hearing the wet thudding sound that it made, but the creature seemed completely unfazed. I fired again, and again. I emptied 13 rounds into that thing, and it didn't stagger, didn't bleed. It just took it without complaint. And then I realized it was making a sound after all. It was low at first, and I couldn't identify it. When I did, I honestly felt my bowels loosen. It was laughing. The sound was terrible, like wet meat and rocks being tumbled into an old dryer, but I could tell that that's what it was. Whatever this thing was, it was laughing at me. Looking back to the child, who had been transfixed by all of this, and I yelled for him to run. I still don't know if that is what killed him, and I try to tell myself that he was going to die regardless, but as I yelled, the creature turned back to him and brought its massive club arm down on his stomach. The boy, well, he just burst open. The arm was brought down a second and a third time, but he was well dead before then. The force from the blow shattering his bones and sending jets of blood and ruined flesh shooting off in streams from the point of impact. The thing then turned back to me, still laughing its awful laugh, and I swear that I could see that mouth of knives smiling at me. So, I ran. My mind was half gone at this point, and I can't say that I was even heading back toward the road. Over the sound of the blood in my ears, I, I could hear the terrible thudding crash of the monster pursuing me now. I tried to go faster, but my vision was beginning to swim, and I found myself struggling to keep up on my feet. I felt more than heard its hot, ragged breath on my back, and I was turning to try and fight it off, but suddenly, I was just flying through the air. Pain flared through my neck and shoulders as I was struck hard by something, and then I was just out again. When I came to, I was in a room of some kind. It looked like a, a basement with cinder block walls and the musty air of disuse. The room was fairly large, stretching out into a darkness that was not illuminated by the single pool of light the overhead bulb afforded. I was tied into a chair, ropes at my wrists and ankles, bungee cord around my chest. I tried to rock the chair, but... It was either very heavy or secured somehow because it just didn't budge. Next, I tried to listen for any sign of noise, any clue as to where I was or who might be around, but there was nothing. Finally, I went back to studying my surroundings, peering into the dark for any further information that I could find, and that was when I saw his eyes. Salk's eyes were reflecting the light from the overhead bulb, and as I stared into the blackness, I could slowly make out his still form. He said nothing, but after a few seconds of studying me, he stepped forward into the light, his eyes still fixed upon me. 
he was smiling, and honestly, it looked very genuine. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family, and on social media too. Thanks again for listening guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.